I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Maureen Corrigan of NPR says of Susan Isaacs, I can think of no other novelist, popular or highbrow, who consistently celebrates female gutsiness, brains, and sexuality. She's Jane Austen with a schmear. One of my favorite <laughs> quotes that I've ever heard anyone say. Susan Isaacs is the author of 13 novels, including As Husbands Go, Long Time No See, Any Place I Hang My Hat, and Compromising Positions. She's the recipient of the Writers for Writers Award and the John Steinbeck Award. Susan serves as chairman of the Board of Poets and Writers and is a past president of Mystery Writers of America. Her fiction has been translated into 30 languages, and she lives on Long Island with her husband, only some of the time, because right now she happens to be in Miami for the right. last few months, and it's really a pleasure to have you on The Literary Life, Susan. Glad to be here. How are you finding Miami uh, this January? Oh, paradisical. <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. I, I, I love it. I love the fact that we are uh, that you don't you're able to do some work while you're down here. Oh yeah, so. it's it's a great place, great place to work because you can. Um, there is a literary community, but when you're really writing, that's the last thing you want to do is get together with a bunch of writers and you know have a drink and have another drink or you know <laughs> a large lunch. 
the there's a way of being solitary, and then you go out, and people are very friendly here. So you can Num be embraced. At the so same you can time. be you can be embraced and em embraced warmly and in several languages. You know, I was, and I love that. I was talking to a writer who. Um, this is going to sound like a commercial for Miami. I don't mean it to be, but I was talking to a writer who lives in uh, the very cold Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, um, and he comes down, he, he's kept an apartment down here for many years, mm -hmm. like you have. And he's on Miami Beach and he comes down. And I said, So, so what are you doing these days? He just mm -hmm. got in. He said, It's the most amazing thing. I'm alone. My mm -hmm. wife is up in the house up north. Right. I, I get up in the morning, I write. I then take a bike ride. I then pour myself a martini. I then read the news, watch the news, go to mm -hmm. sleep, but get up in the morning and write and have a martini at the that, end of the day. There's nothing. Yeah. And he's right in the bay so he can look at the bay right. and that it's, sort of thing. It's beautiful. And I know you're near the water as well. Yes, and I love it. I love it. Because I know what you're doing is you're writing a new installment of uh, the great character that'll be about the great character that you created in your most recent book, which is called takes one to no one and that character is Corey Geller right. right so tell us about takes one takes one to no one why now and why Corey Geller okay um i decided that having avoided doing series for my entire career as a novelist that i wanted to do a series and i thought about it and thought about it, and um, what I wanted to do was um, have as rich a character as I could, so that if you have takes one to no one, the third book wouldn't be takes one to no one goes Hawaiian or something. Um, <laughs> I wanted her to be able to develop. So it took me it took me a while and one really missed chance after two and a half years I threw out my first Oh you did attempt. I did. I was Because you didn't think that the character could really develop the way you wanted. Well it wasn't and I was I was sitting here alone in in Miami without without a martini, but um you know, diet coke and <laughs> for some, uh, and um, I was marking up the pages that I had done that day. And I put them down, and I, as I put them down, I, I, I said to either myself or the dog, I hate this. <laughs> and she was, but she, she was a wonderful character. She was interesting she had um her mother was um initial originally from an egyptian jewish family uh her father was um kind of upper class um cia guy um she'd grown up all around the world especially in the middle east new arabic uh, which was necessary for for the plot of this book. Um, and everything was was terrific about her. And then I realized I hate it. Um, 
It was all right, but all right isn't good enough for me to spend book after book after book. And if I felt that way, my readers um, were not going to enjoy it either. So you kept the character, and then you no, I I threw away the character. Oh, even that character. I threw threw away the character. So it wasn't Corey. It wasn't Corey. No, no, her name was Violet, Uh, and she was really quite nice, but. I kept the plot, and I I spent about two weeks kind of a, a mixture of depression and relief. And I, I did a lot of interesting things with my Instant Pot. So I you know, made a lot of stews and soups, and I was very busy and i was is that how you deal with your anxiety and all of that it's one of the one of the many ways (laughs) so yeah cooking cooking is able to cooking is yeah it 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 is eating does that too eating Eating does that too but cooking you know cooking is it's precise only up to a point and then you throw in a little here a little there and um i was thinking of first lines of books um, you know, call me Ishmael, and you know, books, lines that grab people. And then I remembered Rebecca, um, again, which is something like, um, I dreamt last night that I was back at Manderley, and I thought. that's so British, that's so refined. And I said to myself, I dreamt last night that I was, that I was back on Queens Boulevard. That's a great line. And I thought, hot damn, that is, that's it. And it just felt right. Last night I dreamt I went to Queens Boulevard again. Oh, thanks. (laughs) That's a great line. And what when it not only was an, an opening line, it was the character. And so the character um, was not from an upper-class family. Her uh, dad is a retired NYPD detective. Her mother's a um, uh, an actor who at the height of her career had half a season on Days of Our Lives, but now mostly does local commercials. And she, like me, went to Queens College, where she she wanted to study Russian. She thought she wanted a a language with a, you know, a a non, um, uh, what do you call it, you know, Latin right. alphabet. And so, but Russian 101 was closed, so she took Arabic. And what happened is she fell, it was very, and it is a very difficult language to learn, I've been told by all my Arabic-speaking friends. And then her graduation came close to 9-11. And she wanted to do something for our country, and she had the language skill um, and joined the FBI. And eventually wound up in New York in the joint uh, in the Joint Terrorism Task Force. 
So she's with people from the CIA, from the police, from the What I love is that prior to that, she worked as a literary scout. Well, well she works no this is she she worked a little she thought about it Before but that. then but then 911 and, and then, then so she decided to go she, after way. she she after a little more than 10 years she is burnt out and she also gets married and adopts um her husband's uh daughter right. the husband's a widower and moves out from you know, New York City to Long Island. And her husband is a federal judge. He's very um, cerebral, you know, a decent man. The daughter's not the, you know, monster that stepdaughters are, are mm-hmm. supposed to. And in fact, is a lovely 14-year-old, or as, or as lovely as 14-year-olds come and and this kid is great and so she's living a very different kind of life she does some work for the fbi so her cover as a literary literary scout and she she actually um gets to read an enormous amount of contemporary arabic fiction and what i also love is the way you put the whole thing in motion is if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I read it in a galley when I f- first right. saw you months and months <laughs> right, ago. Right. Is that she's at a party and she kind of perceives this guy to be a little bit off, right? You know, and hiding something, and so she kind of goes down that mm. alley. We she, won't tell people exactly what happened. No, no, we won't. But but it, it's but what what I think this book does is it reminds me of another quote that I had seen about you. Which is so true, and it and it goes like this: What is it that makes Susan Isaac's books so delicious to read? She's funny for starters, and that humor combined with romance and old-fashioned murder mystery tickles every feel-good bone in our bodies. Her characters are whole and flawed and lovable, and you want only the best for them, even as you ardently wish to find them in danger repeatedly <laughs> along the way. And that's kind that's of the way, that, you know, yeah, you're, nice. you come and you really, these characters like Corey was, became an extremely likable character. Yeah. And what it reminds me of and what, what, it, what it, the question <clears throat> that it raises for me is, and I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it before, is when you're beginning a series, mm-hmm. how far ahead do you think? How many books ahead are you thinking? Maybe not completely, mm-hmm. but are you thinking about, you know, plots that she you may she may find herself in, that sort of thing? There, there are no. There's no end to trouble. No end to trouble. I right, like that. and so I don't really worry about that. Um, what I worry about is, you know, keeping not only Corey. But the ca- some of the characters as rich as possible, as rich as possible, and let their relationships develop. She's very lonely in this book. Right. She's very lonely in the suburbs. There's going to be, a, you know, a friendship developing in in the second book. Um, and Does, uh, yeah, I know that you did a, a, a lot of writing uh, for television and for film as right. well. 
And in fact, I think Compromising Positions, you wrote the screenplay, I wrote I the screenplay, yes. So how, how much does that come into play when you're thinking of a series? Because there's a, there are certain acts that happen, act right. one, act two, act three, that sort of thing. It, it happens not at all. Okay. Because I started writing fiction, fiction standalone. First one was a mystery. The second was based on my experience as a um, freelance political speech writer right. for sad Democrats, but a couple <laughs> of them won. And um, so I, I wanted to stay away from mystery after mystery after mystery. So I, I wrote a regular novel as my second. My third was a saga, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, your career has been wonderfully varied. It's been varied. It's it's probably not um, in terms of selling, you know, sales. Probably not the smartest thing because they never know what to um, expect. I had the publisher of a major house um, say to me, "Your your book is going to be about." politics and I said yes and he said well um women this is about 1980 or so women aren't interested in politics and I said but I am and it's it's sure it's politics it's New York state politics which is which what's the title which is that one that one's close relations close relations. and it is you know, by its just by definition, New York State politics, it has to be comedic. But there's also family politics and there's sexual politics. So you you just um I never went along with, you know, stay with one thing and do exquisite variations. Well, I remember when it. we first opened almost forty years ago. Yeah. Almost Paradise came out. Right. And then the one that I think maybe we first met was Shining Through, yeah, which was a fabulous book. Yeah, and I, oh, remember I that. love that. Book. And they're all and they're all different. I can visualize the covers even, but they were all different. They were all marketed differently, even, and but yet we knew it was a Susan Isaacs book. And what's really cool about this is you're not only starting a new series, you're also working with a new publishing house as well, mm -hmm. one that I've always admired, and I think you're having a really good time. Yeah. With. Atlantic Monthly Press. They are terrific. And who's They're, your editor there? Morgan Entrick. Oh, is Morgan? Oh, he's, that's great. he's the editor. And the first time we spoke was on the phone. He said, I, I love this book. And he said, but I'll tell you, I would do a couple of things. And me being me, I took notes because in my youth, I had been an editor at 17 Magazine right. and you know, so I learned a form of journalism, you know, adolescent journalism. And um, so I took notes of what he said. And truly, off the top of his head, he had edited the book. Uh, you know, I later, of course, met him, got a whole, you know, a written, nicely written uh, suggestions. But he he knew it. And he's so good. He's and truly one of our brilliant editors. He's a brilliant have. editor. And a brilliant publisher. And Mark. not only that, the people who work there are 
courteous and appear to like each other. Oh, very much, I think. And I mean that that's sort of, you know, as as the publishing business um was taken over by larger and larger companies and you know people felt that their their jobs were on the line it it was you know very often um you know the the wolves who uh took over let's talk a little bit about how you got from there to here so did you grow up in Forest Hills? Is that where you Well, grew I, I grew up. Um, I or grew near up. It? Well, my first 12 years um, w- was in Brooklyn. Then we moved to Cincinnati cause for three years because my dad changed jobs. And that was really at the very end of the Eisenhower era, but they had pep rallies. Um, you know, odd things that someone from Brooklyn. And, oh, you mean when you were in school? Yeah, when I was in school, they you <laughs> not know not a lot they, of pep rallies in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and um, you know everybody had a um, a page boy, um, and it was uh, it was interesting. So you were there in high school. I was there for three years, and then we moved to Forest Hills, right. to Queens. You know, we were kind of easternly mobile, right, um, from Brooklyn to Queens. <clears throat> and uh, I stayed there through college. I went to Queens College, and um, it was it was a good place to grow up. When did you When did you know that writing was in your future? I did not know that writing in, until well until I had to look for a job. What, I had what been. Were you, what were you doing in college? I was I was I was an English major, economics minor, and um, I. I thought, well, I, I knew I didn't have the math skills, the ease with math to to go on in, to graduate school in, in, economics. In, in economics. And in English, Englishmen, I like to read. So I, uh, I looked for a job, and uh, the only one I could get was at Seventeen Magazine. And so that was your first, your first that was job my in first, the business and they, was an editor at... Well, not Where's quite an, an editorial assistant. Sure. I was writing advice to the lovelorn under the <laughs> na- house name of Abigail Wood. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> but eventually I did become a senior editor there and and it was it was uh it was a great first job. Abigail yeah. Wood. Everybody Abigail Wood. Uh, go look Google Abigail Wood Abigail 17 Wood. Well, magazine. There were, there were actually three of us who were Abigails. But I'm we sure we can turns. figure out who's, yeah, who's was right. yours. And um the the managing editor was a fabulous woman and kind of i didn't know at that age you know i was 21 or so i didn't know from mentors um but she was a mentor did she encourage you to then find your fictional voice no she way? didn't no they had nobody thought of me in fiction other than you know, they knew I read it, which was fine. So what Everyone, made you take that leap? Well, like, because I... Um, was it a story idea or was it just... No, it was it was being home. It was leaving the... Um, at, at, in those days, 
you got to, if you wanted a maternity leave, it was three weeks and that was it. And then you had to go back. And I just, I had my first child um, and I couldn't leave him. I couldn't even think about it. And uh, so I stayed home. I did some freelance magazine articles um, and uh, freelance political speech writing. And then um, <clears throat> I started reading mysteries. And at some point, I was reading three, four a week. Wow. And, um, you know. All you, different kinds. All different kinds. Uh, but but uh, my, my real, the, the reason I chose that genre, I think, is b because besides all the, the usual reasons that it's it's ultimately about justice and um, crime punishment, whatever. Um, the writing is excellent, and it can be. So I I just chose good writers. I mean, I did do the requisite Agatha Christie, um, but but she really was not a good writer. But there were so many who were and who also delivered a good story. Or they were funny, and they were... Who were some of the ones that you loved back then, if you, if um, you remember? Edmund Crispin. Uh -huh. uh, who else? Uh, John Dixon Carr, who was actually an American right. who lived in uh, uh, England. Dorothy Sayers, uh, maybe, as well. I didn't like Dorothy you Sayers. Like she, was, she was too exquisite for me. And she was also so in love with her hero um that uh that i was embarrassed for her <laughs> <laughs> i love that and That's great. um what about some of the more hard boiled guys like yeah, I liked, raymond chandler i loved raymond chandler um, Kane and yes and uh even hammett but ultimately i um uh, you know, I, I said to myself, where, where are the women? And, you know, there, there, there had always been women, but <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the women detectives were being written by a lot of men and the, right. um, you know, but there were people who were starting around the time Sarah Paretsky was. Sure. And um, so there, there really was good company. There was, there was time. It was time, and it was time for not to write, you know, about a, a little Belgian man with mustache and um, right. his little gray cells. But as, as uh, Christie did, but to write about women and women, some who were tough. Well, compromising Some, positions. Was about a housewife. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, about a graduate student turned housewife. Right. And. But it, it, it just launched your career. <clears> it launched point. my career. I mean, it was turned down five times sure. on the theory that it's, it's funny. Or um, who wants to read about a Long Island housewife? Well, if you'll read about a medieval monk 
who who solves you know a crime. Why not a Long Island, why not a Long Island housewife? Right. And that's 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 the beauty of it. Is is that especially um, you know the um, the Scandinavian writers oh. were coming into their own, and uh, it, it's great. You're you're, you're getting a real feel. For, for other cultures. Yes, I, I think the mystery genre has broadened out in such a beautiful way. It that, has. You know, Miami was always seen as a place where mystery writers, you know, in the early days, right. when right. we opened, if you asked anyone about Miami, it was all about mystery writers, people yeah. like Charles Williford, right. even some of Elmore Leonard's stuff, which right. was about Miami. Yes, yes. And then it became Carl Hyacinth and mm -hmm. James W. Hall and all of that. Yeah. So... And that was a different kind of genre as well. But the fact that people could then read about so many different kinds of places within that within genre. Within it, absolutely. To me was a real game changer. Right. Um, the other thing about that I've always admired about you is the idea that you've always felt a responsibility to be a mentor. I mean, you're the president of Poets and Writers. Right. And I know that you worked very closely with the Mystery Writers of America as well. Right. And I know that you've taken other young writers under your wing. Mm -hmm. Who are some of the up-and-coming young writers that you feel we should be paying attention to? Or maybe maybe not you so know, young. Then, then, maybe then, writers then, that we just need well, to know Well, you know, there, there, there's, there's a writer, right? Actually, here, here's my little publisher, and there's a wonderful writer at that was at the dinner named Sarah Broom, who oh, wrote a book look, called look The Yellow that. House. Oh, look what happened! And look what happened! <laughs> I mean, it's it's wonderful. It's it's great to see. And and listen, if I if 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 my kids who are now middle aged people, and one's a lawyer and one's a philosopher, and so if I were to say. If they came to me and said, I want to be a novelist, I would say, I, because, so you know, hard. it's hard. It's hard to make a living, and you can't be assured of, of, of living. But it's also, it's also a great, a great way. I mean, I, I get to do, to sit in a room by myself and you know, um, figuratively, uh, you know, kind of put my thumb in my mouth and tell myself stories. It's it's the ultimate childhood dream, and it's a great um, it's a great indulgent indulgence and a great privilege, and um, you know, and you can wear sweatpants, so. <laughs> And we booksellers and readers, thank you for that. And I, know I thank also, you. I would also love you to read a little bit of uh, "Takes One to Know One" if if you have something you'd like to share with us. Okay, this is is an odd little paragraph or two, but it's odd because it comes from the almost at the end of the book. Um, but there there is a, a bad guy. And she is in terrible danger, and there there really does not rationally appear to be a way out. And um, she's been she's been held hostage for 
She doesn't know how long because it's a dark room. It, um, I have to go to the bathroom, I told him. He'd come in almost silently. I hadn't heard him as much as since movement of air, but it was enough. At bathroom, his movement came to a stop so abrupt that it made this a sound, a near inaudible clunk of the soles of sneakers banging together. Surprise, maybe. What, a request? No hysteria? He didn't answer, so I repeated, I really have to go. Tough. He made no attempt to disguise his voice. Not good. If I had a balance sheet, this wasn't headed for the assets column. Clearly, he didn't see me as having a long-term relationship with him or with anyone. Harsh, but sociopaths aren't given to random acts of loving kindness. The bathroom business was not as dire as it might have been because I'd already peed twice. That was as repulsive as it sounds. I understood that if I lived, I would be horribly chafed. Oh, that's amazing. Sociopaths are not given to random acts of kindness. Yes. I love that line. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan, for being part of the literary life and for, for being with me today. I'm I delighted. really appreciate it. Delighted to be on this podcast.